0: hey welcome to episode number 45 of more than bread i'm dan your host bible reader and the pastor of calvary and stake college pennsylvania this podcast more than bread is all about the value of the word of god but but as we do a deep dive into the gospel of john what, what we're finding out is that you can't separate the word of god which is the bible from the word of god made flesh which is jesus to in this episode, we're in John chapter 2, which is the first of the seven signs. If you listen to the intro to John, you may remember that John uses seven I Am sayings and seven miraculous signs to reveal to us Jesus, the Son of God. Now, now this sign is, is one of my favorite. Actually, I like them all, but this one is kind of unexpected. It, it's all about the day when Jesus turned water into wine at a marriage festival, at a marriage reception, at a party. Now, before I read John chapter 2, let me set the stage a bit. One time Jesus was asked, what is the kingdom of God really like? And Jesus' answer was, the kingdom of God is like a wedding reception, a party, right? In In Jesus' day, wedding receptions were not an obligation. They were a ridiculously lavish celebration that often involved the whole community and went on for days, not hours. Len Sweet writes, Jesus loved banquets. Real blowout, big time guzzle and gulp it down feast. Not for Jesus would there be any plastic plated deli trays, no rubbery chicken a la King or dry sheet cakes. Only the King's own prime rib steaks and veal chops are feastable material. A true feast is above and beyond everyday experiences and expectations. And the kingdom of heaven, Jesus said, is like a festival, a party with really good food. We have a party, God. C.S. Lewis said, joy is the serious business of heaven. Now, I'm not saying that, that we don't go through tough times. We we live in a messy, dark, sometimes dark world. We live in a fallen world. But a personal relationship with a good, happy creator, that, that should rub off. I, I love how the prophet Isaiah describes this happy God. The Lord says, Isaiah wrote, the Lord says, these people come near to me with their mouths and they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship is made up of rules taught by men. You catch that? God is bummed because people's hearts are all bricked up and their worship is filled with dry rules. There's no joy. There's no amazement or wonder. There's no fun. So what does God decide to do? He says, therefore, once more, I will astound these people with wonder upon wonder. In other words, I'm going to blow their minds. I'm going to knock their socks off. I'm going to bring a smile to their faces if it's the last thing I do. And God will do that. man. he loves to do that. Years ago, my son Josh was probably about eight years old. He was sitting in church listening to me preach. Not all that much fun for an eight-year-old. But Josh was asking Lynn all kinds of questions about what I was saying. And it's kind of like being in the movies with him at that time. He's just always talking, always trying to figure stuff out. And finally she said, "Shh, Josh, I'm missing everything Daddy is saying. And so he was quiet for a while and at some point Lynn looked over him and he had his head down in his hands. And so she just reached over and scratched his back. (laughs) And he looked up, huge grin on his face. Mom, do you know what just happened? I prayed, God, if you really hear my prayers, would you make my mom reach over and scratch my back in two minutes and ten seconds? And I counted and right when I got to 130, you reached over and scratched my back. God astounded him with a wonder when i look back over my life there's one story after another of the times when god astounded me with a wonder right i could tell you about the time god gave my family an unexpected pod of dolphins as we snorkeled in a bay i could tell you about emails received which share stories of life transformation hope reborn a marriage restored i could tell you about the birth of each of my kids in my life god has astounded me with wonder upon wonder and filled me with joy hasn't always been easy, but the moments of joy have been good. And yet somehow, somewhere, we've gotten this odd notion that to be truly spiritual is to be terminally gloomy, right? We paint Christianity in in black and white when our relationship with Jesus is meant to be shown in living color. The Bible talks a lot about joy. In fact, it would be easy to argue that joy is at the heart of God's plan for humanity. In Psalm 1611, the psalmist writes, You will show me the way of life, granting me the joy of your presence and the pleasures of living with you forever. Go and enjoy choice food, says in Nehemiah 18, and sweet drinks and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve for the joy of Of the Lord is your strength. In fact, I think I can say this. No one does joy like God. John Orberg writes, God is the happiest being in the universe. God also knows sorrow, but the sorrow of God is a temporary response to a fallen world. The sorrow will be banished when the world is set right. Joy is God's basic character. Joy is God's eternal destiny. God is the happiest being in the universe which means he's got joy overflowing joy to give us and i'm not talking about circumstantial happiness it's deeper and more solid than that it's more exhilarating it can produce laughter but you can't define it as a laugh it doesn't require a closed eye approach to a reality but it does require a new look at life it requires an understanding that joy is a gift from god and nobody does joy like god And I think, at least in part, joy is the underlying theme of John 2. So let's read John chapter 2. I'll be reading from the New Living Translation, and here's what it says. The next day there was a wedding celebration in the village of Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples were also invited to the celebration. The wine supply ran out during the festivities. So Jesus' mother told him, "Told Jesus that they have no more wine. Dear woman, that's not our problem, Jesus replied. My time has not yet come. But his mother told the servants, do whatever he tells you. (laughs) Standing nearby were six stone water jars used for Jewish ceremonial washing. Each could hold 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus told the servants, fill the jars with water. When the jars had been filled, he said, now dip some out and take it to the master of ceremonies. Can you imagine? My words, can you imagine being one of those servants? I mean, all you've done is filled six jars with water, about 180, somewhere between 120 and 180 gallons of water. You filled up the jars. Jesus didn't say anything. He didn't do any kind of hocus pocus. He didn't say any incantation. He didn't touch it. He didn't kick the jars. He just said, okay, they're full. Now, dip some out and take it to the master of ceremonies. So the servants remembering, right, Remembering what Mary said, do whatever he tells you to do. Verse 8, so the servants followed his instructions. When the master of ceremonies tasted the water that was now wine, not knowing where it had come from, though of course the servants knew, he called the bridegroom over and he said, a host always serves the best wine first. And then when everyone has had a lot to drink, he brings out the less expensive wine. But you have kept the best until now. My words, not, not only did Jesus turn water into wine, he turned water, common water, into fine wine, the best of the party. Verse 11 This miraculous sign at Cana in Galilee was the first time Jesus revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After the wedding, he went to Capernaum for a few days with his mother, his brothers, and his disciples. It was nearly time for the Jewish Passover celebration, so Jesus went to Jerusalem. In the temple area, he saw merchants selling cattle, sheep, and doves for sacrifices. He also saw dealers at tables exchanging foreign money. And Jesus made a whip from some ropes and chased them all out of the temple. He drove out the sheep and the cattle, and he scattered the money changers' coins over the floor, and he turned over their tables. And then going over to the people who sold doves, he told them, Get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace then his disciples remember this prophecy from the scriptures passion for God's house will consume me let, let me just stop a moment and, and make sure that it's clear that that there's a place in Jesus heart and his life for both joy and passion for both joy and this urgency but but both of them are connected to people Jesus was overflowing joy he, he brought joy a moment of happiness even to, to the people at the wedding party who had this wine emergency. But, but this is not just about the Father's house. This is about people not having a place in the temple because it's so filled with a, a marketplace of people selling and buying things for sacrifices, religious stuff still. But, but it's crowding the people out of the temple. There's no place for people to experience the presence of God in the temple because it's filled with a marketplace. Jesus isn't so much against buying and selling. He's not against business. He just wants there to be room for people in the presence of God. Verse 18. But the Jewish leaders demanded, what are you doing? If God gave you the authority to do this, show us a miraculous sign to prove it. All right, Jesus replied, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. What, they exclaimed, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you can rebuild it in three days? But when Jesus said this temple, he meant his own body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered he had said this, and they believed both the scripture and what Jesus said. And because of the miraculous signs Jesus did in Jerusalem at the Passover celebration, many began to trust in him. But Jesus didn't trust them because he knew all about people. No one needed to tell him about human nature, for he knew what was in each person's heart. Before I take a, a bit of a deep dive with a, some devotional thoughts and application, I just want to point out that people began to trust in Jesus, but Jesus didn't trust them because he knew all about people. You know, how many times in our world, in our lives, have, have we questioned, can I trust God? Can I trust God? How many times, if, if you're a follower of Christ, have you felt like it was your duty to convince somebody else that they could trust God? And I just wonder if we shouldn't turn the question upon ourselves at times. Can God trust me? When Jesus looks at my life, can Jesus trust me? When he sees what's in my heart, can he trust me? Now, I want you to imagine this. In those days, a father had to start preparing for his daughter's wedding day, probably the day she was born. A wedding in those days was a community event that could last days So imagine the owner of the vineyard. From the time his daughter was born, every year they would crush the grapes and make the wine, and one barrel (laughs) he would set back for her wedding. Girls would usually get married by 15 or 16. A good father might have 16 barrels of wine. Some of it now aged to a fine wine. They they would start with those. The best comes out first. But in this particular wedding party, a a wedding emergency, a, a party embarrassment comes up. Jesus' mother, Mary, comes to Jesus and says, they have no more wine. As another pastor said, with those words, Mary speaks a truth about our lives, a truth that at some point we all experience. There comes a day when the wine gives out, when the glass is empty and the party is over. And on that day, life can kind of seem empty and dry. There's no vibrancy or vitality The the bouquet of life is absent and we're living less than fully alive. Jesus compared the kingdom of heaven to a wedding party. But even beyond that, biblically, the image of wine brings to mind the the joy and the abundance of life with God. The Bible clearly critiques the misuse of wine. But the prophet Isaiah tells us that one of the marks of the Messiah is that he'll rescue us from hardship and provide for us a feast full of rich food and well-aged wine. In other words, in the midst of our difficulty, he will provide joy. When the wine runs dry, he will provide joy. Jesus will end up being the life of your party. So let me ask this weekend, has your wine run dry? Let me ask you this episode, has your wine run dry? Everybody listening probably has a story about the day the wine ran dry. It might involve a marriage that, that's lost its joy or the death of a loved one. It might involve a search for community or, or wrestling with failure. I, I, know, I know people who would tell stories of regret or fear. Some don't even know the story. They just have this indescribable longing for an unnamed something more. And the, the wine is run dry. <laughs> you know what? In my youth, I thought that when the wine ran dry, I could always fill my cup on my own. Just work harder. Think smarter. Laugh louder. Be first more often. Succeed achieve make sure that others think well of you but these last few years I've discovered that the wine running dry is less about my circumstances and more about my heart and and the cure isn't found in the illusion of my self-sufficiency but in the reality of God's gracious provision see i've I found that there's no need for a miracle till the wine runs out we're all looking for a miracle, but every miracle starts with a problem. We, we don't even ask God for a miracle until we realize that we can't fill our own cup. The first step to living our one and only life in an uncommon way is to admit that the wine has run dry and we can't fill our cup. And in fact, when that happens, we come to Jesus with a posture of brokenness. We're saying to, to Jesus, here's what I have to bring to the table of of my achievements, of my success. It's not my capacities and capabilities. It's not even the gifts or the resources that you've given me. What I have to bring is my desperate dependency, my acknowledgement that my wine has run dry and I can't fill my cup. So Mary goes to Jesus. Jesus, the wine has run dry. And the conversation continues in verses 4 and 5 of John 2, right? Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour is not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you to do. Jesus sounds almost disrespectful here, but but he's not. The the language of the day between parent and child was often more formal. And Jesus isn't saying, leave me alone, get out of here. Mary's asking for a miracle. And Jesus is simply saying, it's not time yet. It's not time for the miracles. It's not time for people to begin to wonder about me. (laughs) But Mary won't stop. She looks at the servants and says, do whatever he tells you to do. Here's another principle. When the wines run dry and you come to God, ask whatever you want, but only if you're willing to do whatever he asks. Are you willing to do whatever he asks? I mean, rarely does God do a miracle without first asking you to do something. What would it mean for you right now in this moment of your life if you were willing to ask him anything but surrender to him Everything. Not, not my timing, but yours, God. Not not my way, but yours. See, if we put it into his hands, we have to let his hands work. So Jesus turned the water into wine, and it ends up being the best wine. Six stone water jars holding 20 to 30 gallons of water. Let's average it out and call it 150 gallons. And when the master of the banquet gives it the taste test, he realized that what they thought was good wine in the beginning is nothing compared to the wine bottled under Christ's label. <laughs> I mean, this is both a miracle of quantity and quality. 150 gallons, that's like 768 bottles of fine wine. Hashtag OMG. It's so much and it's so good. Don't miss the sign. Because remember, this isn't just a miracle, it's a sign. It's an act meant to point to something. A a sign tells us something is coming, something is up ahead. It it labels something. It's an act meant to tell us something about Christ. It's meant to paint a portrait of some aspect of the glory of God. And I think part of the message is simply when God pours out joy, it's an above and beyond ordinary kind of joy. When we uncork the joy of Jesus, it goes beyond our expectations, both in quantity and quality. And Jesus loved life, and he was filled with joy. Can you imagine Jesus making 768 bottles of wine without a twinkle in his eye? i got to tell you, when Jesus walked the earth, he knew how to party. Religious people would come to Jesus and say, What kind of religious guy are you? They called him a wine-drinking glutton. They said, Why can't you be serious? And Jesus said, Hey, I'm, I'm like a bridegroom heading to his wedding. When I'm around, the wedding party celebrates. But see, here's the deal. Jesus didn't go to parties looking for life. Wherever he was, there was a party because he had life to give. Jesus is the life of the party because he gives life to everyone who asks. And life givers party well. John closes his story with these words in verse 11. He said, what Jesus did here in Canaan of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. (laughs) So as I close this episode let me just ask you what do you think about Jesus? I think he was the most uncommon man who ever lived. I think that what he is is what our hearts thirst for. Every time the wine runs dry in our life, it's a reminder that we were made for something more, something better. We are made for someone greater. I think that with Jesus, no matter how good life is or how difficult, we can with confidence believe that the best is yet to come. I believe that there is more Jesus yet to come. I believe that Jesus is able to do more than you can ask for or even imagine. I believe that in those moments when it seems like he's asking you to surrender too much, He simply wants us to open our arms for something better than we can imagine. John 2 is such a good chapter. With with this context of joy and, and the wine running dry, let me just read it again from the message paraphrase. Now on the third day, Jesus' mother went to a wedding feast in the Galilean village of Cana. Jesus and his disciples were all invited to the banquet but with so many guests they ran out of wine and when mary realized it, she came to jesus and asked they have no wine can't you do something about it jesus replied my dear one don't you understand that if i do this it will change nothing for you but it will change everything for me my hour of unveiling my power has not yet come mary then went to the servers and told them whatever jesus tells you to do do it nearby stood six stone water parts pots meant to be used for the Jewish washing rituals each one could hold about 20 gallons or more Jesus came to the servers and instructed them fill the pots with water right up to the very brim and then he said now fill your pitchers and take them to the master of ceremonies and when they poured out their pitchers for the master of ceremonies to sample the water had become wine and when he tasted the water that had become wine the master of ceremonies was impressed with its quality Although he didn't know where the wine had come from, only the servers knew. He called the bridegroom over and said to him, You know, every host serves his best wine first until everyone has had a cup or two, and then he serves the cheaper wine. But you, my friend, you've reserved the most exquisite wine for now. This miracle in Cana was the first of the many extraordinary miracles Jesus performed in Galilee that revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After the wedding, Jesus, his mother and brothers, and his disciples traveled to Capernaum, and they stayed there for a few days. Now, Capernaum, my words, you understand, and and we'll see this more and more, but Capernaum is kind of the the, the main hub for Jesus' activity, especially in the beginning of his ministry. And and it's kind of the hometown, uh, the hometown region at least for many of his followers. And so he's going to Capernaum. So they go back to Capernaum, and he stayed there for a few days. Verse 13, when the time was close for the Jewish Passover to begin, Jesus walked to Jerusalem. As he went into the temple courtyard, he noticed that it was filled with merchants selling oxen, lambs, and doves for exorbitant prices, while others were overcharging as they exchanged currency behind their counters. So Jesus found some cords, and he made them into a whip, and he drove out every one of them and their animals from the courtyard of the temple. And he kicked over their tables filled with money, scattering it everywhere. And he told the merchants, get those things out of here. Don't you dare commercialize my father's house. That's when his disciples remembered the scripture, I am consumed with a fiery passion to keep your house pure. Then the Jewish religious leaders challenged Jesus, what authority do you have to do this sort of thing and what supernatural sign will you show us to prove it? Jesus answered, destroy this temple and I'll raise it up again in three days. And the Jewish leaders sneered at Jesus' answer, this temple took 46 years to build and you mean to tell us that you'll raise it up in three days? But they failed to understand that Jesus was speaking of the temple of his body. The disciples remembered his prophecy after Jesus rose from the dead and believed both the scripture and what Jesus had said. While Jesus was at the Passover feast, the number of his followers began to grow and many gave their allegiance to him because of all the miraculous signs they'd seen him doing. But Jesus did not yet entrust himself to them because he knew how fickle human hearts can be. He needed no one to tell him about human nature, for he fully understood what people were capable of doing. Let me pray. Father God, thank you so much for your word, for the word of God, the word of God, not only in written form that, that we read in this episode, but the word of God made flesh who lived among us, who showed us the, the very face of God, your face, your image. We thank you for Jesus. We, we thank you for this reminder in this moment from this miraculous sign that you are a God of overflowing, abundant joy. That doesn't mean that all our moments will be easy and carefree and and filled with comfort. Some of them will be deeply hard, but the joy you you give goes beyond circumstances. And I pray for each and every person listening to this, that if the wine of their life is run dry, that they would entrust their hearts to you, the only one who is truly trustworthy. And I ask, Father God, I ask Jesus, I ask Spirit of God, would you pour your joy, even in this moment, would you pour your joy out upon them? We ask all these things in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thanks for joining us on this episode. And the next episode, we'll take a look at John chapter 3.